Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud in a way that closely resembles a psychotic break with reality. My name is H.J. Doom and I am your guide on this tour through an endless sea of numbered paragraphs. This episode being a bonus episode, we're taking a break from the fighting fantasy line of adventure game books and delving into the most powerful intellectual property in the universe. That's right, this episode will be accompanying He-Man on a quest entitled He-Man and the Memory Stone. This combines three things I love, old Saturday morning cartoons, adventure game books, and ladybird books. He-Man, for those that need an introduction, was a phenomenally popular line of action figures, that I was completely obsessed with at the age of five. Cheaply made, but dripping with character, the toys presented a huge range of implausibly muscled heroes and villains, with a distinctive aesthetic that was a combination of barbarian fantasy and science fiction. The titular He-Man was the alter ego of Prince Adam, a classic feckless scion of the ruling class of Eternia, but... When he held aloft his magic sword and bellowed, By the power of Greyskull, he was transformed into He-Man, a nearly nude hero of such baffling strength that he would instantly destroy whatever obstacle his nemesis Skeletor had put in his path. I still have a tremendous fondness for the cartoon series, even though it was little more than a thinly disguised series of adverts for the action figure line, and I even quite like the disastrous live-action movie with Frank Langella as the cackling Skeletor opposite Dov Lundgren's permanently oiled himbo. Ladybird Books too was something of a rite of passage for people who grew up in England at a certain time. They published small, cheap, hardback books aimed at very young readers. They were famously beautifully illustrated in a vibrant but old-fashioned style. They covered both fiction, often traditional stories, and non-fiction. Their conservative visions of family life in Britain in the 1970s were foundational texts for many children growing up well into the 1980s and beyond. They could be surprisingly daring too. The very first horror story I ever read was the Ladybird adaptation of Dracula aimed at five to seven-year-olds, and it scared me so much that I made crosses out of Lego and slept with a tube of garlic puree beside my bed for several weeks. Ladybird published a series of six He-Man adventure game books in the 1980s, and I think I had all of them as a child. Today, we'll be playing through He-Man and the Memory Stone, which was released in 1985, when I would have been right in the middle of my Masters of the Universe obsession. He-Man and the Memory Stone was devised by Roger Hurt, written by Jason Kingsley, and illustrated by Judith Wood and David Glenn. My thanks, as always, to my patrons for making this most self-indulgent of episodes possible. Also, thank you to the people who have been in touch with me to give feedback. I love getting emails, and if you want to get in contact, you can do so at hjdoomretrofun, which is all one word, at gmail.com. Without any further ado, let's dive into this adventure. Okay, so uh, He-Man and the Memory Stone uh, does, it may surprise you to learn, have a system. In order to play, you will need a pencil and one six-sided dice. And the uh, instructions are pretty simple. Uh, We have 12 life points, 
So we start at 12. If we lose all 12 of them, the adventure ends and you've got to start again. And it instructs you that sometimes you will meet enemies you have to fight and you will roll the die to find out what happens in these battles. So very, very simple, but nonetheless present. I'll be doing my vision of the voices for these characters uh, based solely on my dim memories of what they sounded like. They probably won't add anything like the actual characters because as long-time listeners will have noted, I'm not very good at doing voices, but I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it the old college try to try and at least give a semblance of the cartoon. Deep underneath Snake Mountain, deeper than even Skeletor had dared to go before, the slave Skelcons had found a cavern. They immediately summoned their master. Skeletor rushed through the mines down towards the newly unearthed cavern. At last we have found it. The brain-draining stone truly exists. Pushing aside his gibbering servants, he entered the small chamber. Now to put an end to that laughable buffoon He-Man. I will suck his mind dry. Skeletor raised his energy blade until its tip almost touched the small grey stone in the centre of the chamber. With an evil cackle, the Lord of Destruction set about the task of draining He-Man's mind. But unknown to him, the stone was not perfect, and its brain-draining powers missed their mark. Instead, they struck Man-at-Arms. In Castle Greyskull, Man-at-Arms was busy repairing and recharging the energy weapons when the black beam struck him like a shadowy hand. He fought strongly, but the ancient stone's power forged by who knows what foul creature succeeded in sucking his memory dry. He could no longer remember anything. I know exactly how he feels. I've felt like that for at least the last five years. Skeletor was furious. He had seen what had happened through his video lens. Fools! he shouted as the Skelcons hid in the deep shadows, afraid of their master's anger. I shall still destroy He-Man. Without man-at-arms to repair and invent their weapons, their castle is defenceless. Back at Castle Greyskull, everyone had crowded round man-at-arms. They soon realised what had happened. Stratos had caught a glimpse of the beam with his super-sensitive eyes. There is nothing else that can be done, said He-Man quietly. We have no other means of transport. All our machines are useless without the expert man-at-arms to maintain them. While you all remain here to protect the castle from attack, I must go with Battle Cat and the trusty Power Blade to recapture his memories. So, uh, that's a nice little introduction. Skeletor done a bad, and He-Man gonna stop him. Pretty efficient storytelling, I have to say. There is a lovely illustration of Skeletor triumphantly pointing his power blade at the memory stone in the cavern whilst surrounded by, I'd say, mildly unimpressed looking Skelcons, if I'm honest. Their faces are quite hard to read, but their body language is nonchalant, I think, rather than awestruck. It's really interesting the way the art's embedded in the text, so every two pages is fully painted with the text in boxes over the top which creates a really uh, really colorful approach and almost every double page spread has a very very specific color palette going into it so here it's the purples and blues that characterize Skeletor are contrasted against the brown and ochre shades that are the cavern and yeah it's just really appealing to look at really appealing 
but we must continue with our adventure. So do we want He-Man to leave right away, or do we want to wait till nightfall? I say that when you're the most powerful man in the universe, you don't skulk around at night, you leave right away. Just as the drawbridge is about to be lowered, Stratos rushes up to He-Man. I don't think you should leave during the day. Your mission will be made much easier if you leave in darkness. This will also give me time to investigate the lie of the land. He-Man agrees and returns to help build more defences for the castle. So, already we're being railroaded into one specific thing. While He-Man gets ready for his great task, Stratos, Lord of Avion, takes to the air to search the area for dangers. It is dusk when he returns. Through the thick leaves, I saw Beastman and a band of large creatures heading this way along the road. Leaping to his feet, He-Man mounts Battlecat, and they race over the drawbridge and into the night. Okay, threat increasing. Do we want to follow the road through the forest, tell Battlecat to plunge through the undergrowth, or walk alongside Battlecat? I guess we want to avoid Beastman. And hence avoid the road. So I guess we go and plunge through the undergrowth. Battlecat's mighty muscles ripple with strength as he bounds through the thick undergrowth. Soon, Battlecat catches sight of the hairy beastman swinging through the low branches which lead him deeper into the uncharted evergreen forest. Do we want to speed up after beastman or do we think it might be a trap? Well, I'm nothing if not paranoid, so I'm going to go with trap. Battlecat agrees with He-Man that the Beastman is trying to lead them into a trap. He suggests that they split up and try and foil his plan by attacking from both sides at once. Not sure I like the idea of receiving tactical advice from a glorified horse, but I think he's probably got a point, so we will try and attack from both sides at once. The two heroes split up, making a wide detour. Both He-Man and Battlecat arrive at opposite sides of the trap that has been set for them. A strong net tied between two springy saplings would have made them helpless prisoners had they blundered into it. With a roar, the great green and yellow tiger scatters Beastman and his people. They run into the trees, howling in fright. Leaving Beastman's trap behind, Battlecat and He-Man head back to the road. The road is well used and heads through the evergreen forest towards the wide grassy plains in the south. There, He-Man hopes to find even faster transport than his faithful Battlecat, but there is still a long way to go. We are getting um, shunted from one paragraph to the next fairly quickly, it has to be said. The dark night fades into cool dawn light as Eternia's sun rises over distant hazy mountains. Soon the dense forest thins out and the vast grassy south plain comes into sight. It's a nice illustration, I think, of the sun rising over the mountains and it suffuses this whole double page spread on which there's like eight paragraphs with a beautiful warm yellowy glow. Very nice. Yeah, it's a bit weird that you're just sort of reading some paragraphs that have nothing to do with the double page illustrations, but overall I, I did quite like it. The dawn silence is shattered by a terrible screeching sound. He-Man turns just in time to fend off a hurtling body with his shield. The creature jumps to its feet as Battlecat's hairs bristle in anger. A hideous monkey spider has dropped down on He-Man from its perch high in one of the great trees. Looking like a large monkey with spider's legs coming out of its body, 
it approaches, dripping poison on the ground. Uh, unsurprisingly, this double-page spread is devoted to He-Man looking in horror at the monkey spider, which I would say is absolute, unfiltered nightmare fuel. I mean, it could have been worse, I guess, but this eight-legged, clawed monkey thing dripping poison, I imagine will be featuring in my nightmares for many years to come. So we now get to do our first fight. And you roll the d6 and it, it just, just does whatever you go. So uh, my first d6 roll is a four. So uh, He-Man wounds the creature badly. Add two to your next throw, which is pretty cool. And so we roll again. I get a one. Uh, but with the two added to my next throw, that becomes a three. And so He-Man wounds the creature. Add one to your next throw. So I've actually gone backwards. That's less good. I've got a four, but with the plus one, that takes me to five. And He-Man knocks the creature out. So good news. We have beaten the spider monkey, monkey spider rather. We have beaten the monkey spider unconscious. I'd have killed it myself. Some things are just too horrifying to be allowed to live. But yeah, at least we've made it past it. Leaving the monkey spider behind, He-Man and Battlecat jog through the wispy grass down a gently sloping hillside onto the great southern plain. The creature I seek is a horse with a man's mind, though his human side is tempered with a horse's natural nervousness, says He-Man. He-Man turns to the great cat. The huge tiger nods in agreement. I understand, he growls in reply. If you wish, I will return to Castle Grayskull. Uh, do we want to send him back? I think we do, because under no circumstances do I want to have to do that voice again. We will send Battlecat back. Battlecat moves away as Thunderhorse comes nearer. He is still very nervous about Battlecat, but he says, It is a long time since we last met, He-Man. I am glad to see you again. It is sad that we should meet only because of Skeletor's evil, my friend, replies He-Man. Can you take me across the sands of time? It would be a pleasure, but I can go no further than the far edge of the desert. I cannot help you in the vine jungle, says Thunderhorse. He-Man grips Thunderhorse's mane as together they set off for the desert of desolation and the sands of time. No picture of Thunderhorse, which feels like a missed opportunity. A cloud of dust is seen across the vast grassy plain. Ahead of it gallops the fleet-footed Thunderhorse. Quickly, the great grey dunes appear on the horizon. A scorching wind blows sand from their summits. The sand covers the grasslands and Thunderhorse slows to a brisk walk as his hooves begin to disappear under the surface at every stride. Again and again, Thunderhorse and He-Man climb the steep side of a dune, only to see still more dunes ahead of them. The sun is getting low on the horizon when they reach the end of the dunes. Here the sand is firmer, and He-Man leaps onto Thunderhorse's back, and they continue. Over to his left, He-Man sees an unusual cone-shaped hollow in the dry sand. Do you want to investigate, or tell Thunderhorse to keep going? I think I want to investigate. Who knows what could be within it? Stay here, my friend, says He-Man to Thunderhorse, while I go and investigate. Carefully, He-Man approaches the edge of the deep pit. His sharp eyes catch sight of a dark, 
shiny object at its centre. Do you want to climb down and investigate? Or kick some sand down the pit? Or return to Thunder Horse and continue on his way? I mean, there's an obvious right answer, isn't there? We could kick some sand down. So, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. The dry sand pours down to the bottom of the funnel-shaped pit, where it bounces off the shiny object. With a roar, a huge, glossy, black beetle erupts from beneath the sand, ready to devour its victim. But He-Man is too far away, and the beetle sinks back under the sand to begin the long wait for its next meal. Well, that was evocative. Dusk approaches as Thunderhorse gallops across the burning sands towards He-Man's next obstacle, the Vine Jungle. As they rush along, spears of tough grass begin to appear, then green bushes and small thorn trees until they are at the edge of the thick, moist jungle. They dislike the word moist. Thunderhorse stops. Here our ways must part, my friend. I can help you no more. I will return to my green plains. Thank you, replies He-Man. You are a true friend. With a whinny, Thunderhorse gallops off into the dim light. I'm enjoying the different biomes we're getting to visit. Admittedly, we're not spending very long in any of them, but effort's been put in to make it feel like a vibrant and varied world. I am enjoying that. The jungle seems dim and eerie compared to the harsh heat of the desert. But He-Man must go on ahead through the steaming undergrowth. Bright birds flutter high in the trees, rainbow frogs hop away quickly, and monkeys chatter loudly throwing twigs at one another. Roll the die. We get a one to three, one thing happens, four to six, another thing happens. We get a four. The undergrowth gets denser, and He-Man starts to use the power blade to cut his way through the thick vines that block his way. Suddenly, one of the vines seems to grab at his arm. He-Man is surrounded by coiling, grabbing vines. For each one he cuts with the power blade, two more drop down to take its place. So I've got another d6 table. Uh, I roll a two. He-Man is scratched by the thick vines. Subtract one life point. Life now down to 11. Uh, we roll a five. He-Man holds his own against the vines, but cannot get free. Uh, we roll a one. He-Man is being choked by the vines. Subtract one life point. Three. The vines squeeze He-Man. Another one. Another life point. So we're choked by the vines. Am I just going to get garroted to death by these vines? I should point out that on this table, it's quite a tough one. There's only a one in six chance of freeing yourself. You need a six. So uh, I just rolled a four. He-Man can hear cruel laughter from somewhere. Yeah, I'm just rolling until I get a six. There we go. There's a six. I skipped over some of the uh, the duller the entries, but yeah, that's a genuinely tough fight. So uh, we're down to eight life points, but with a mighty effort, He-Man cuts himself free. So I get to go to the next bit. Tearing himself free of the vines, He-Man rushes out of their reach. And we get to roll the die again to find out what happens. If you get a one or a two, which I've just rolled a one, so... Yeah, something bad happens. The ground gives way under He-Man's feet as he sinks into quicksand. So another D6 table. Two. He-Man sinks deeper into the mire. Another two. He-Man sinks deeper into the mire. One. He-Man is bitten by something. Subtract one life point. Uh, another 
sinking deeper into the mire. Uh, He-Man's struggles make him sink further. He-Man pulls himself to the edge but cannot get a grip. Add one to your next throw. So we've got a five or a six on this. Come on. Five or six. Five. With plus one. Flexing his mighty muscles, He-Man pulls himself out of the sticky quicksand. With the slimy quicksand dripping off him, He-Man pulls himself out of danger. Cleaning the worst of the muck off with a couple of broad leaves, he continues through the jungle, keeping a careful lookout for any more quicksand. Soon he reaches a clearing. In the centre of the clearing is a small village surrounded by sharpened poles. Part of these defences have been smashed down. He-Man moves closer. In the centre of a ring of mud huts is the foul creature Whiplash, an evil reptile and servant of Skeletor. He is attacking the small pygmy people. He-Man shouts out a challenge to Whiplash. Uh, Whiplash turns angrily and thrashes his massive tail. He charges at He-Man, knocking several of the pygmies aside. And we've got another D6 table. He-Man is wounded by Whiplash. Subtract one life point. That's half our life points already gone. Uh, Six. I was due a decent bit of luck, to be fair. Uh, Six. Whiplash is knocked out. Uh, Just good news... Uh, Not least because it means I don't have to actually do a voice for Whiplash. So uh, that's good. The tiny pygmies rush to thank He-Man as Whiplash lies on the trampled floor. He-Man tells them to tie up Whiplash with some jungle vines. May we help you? Asks the chief pygmy, his bone necklace rattling. Fortunately, not an illustration of the pygmies. Because I feel like it would probably be quite racist. 1985... Probably quite racist. Yes, but these pygmies, I've decided, come from Yorkshire. So, uh, may we help you? Asks the chief pygmy, his bone necklace rattling. Yes, indeed, replies He-Man. If you could take me to the edge of the jungle, it would be a great help. A large band of pygmies, armed with small spears and blowguns, lead He-Man through the jungle to the edge of a high cliff. Many hundreds of feet below begins the volcanic region, which He-Man must cross to get to Snake Mountain, and the stone which holds Man-at-Arm's memory. He turns to thank the pygmies, but they have disappeared back into the jungle. There are several ways in which he could climb down the rocky cliff. Does he want to use the thick creepers that dangle over the edge, or climb down using the many hand and footholds, or search for an easier path down? Like creepers have a nasty habit of falling off when you use them as ropes. So I'm going to not do that. That one we're definitely not going to do. I think we could climb down using the many hand and footholds in the rock. That seems to be something that ought to be within He-Man's skill set. Okay, um, just an aside, this uh, this double page has a illustration of Thunderhorse. Quite glowy and is wearing a genuinely ridiculous necklace of purple leaves of some sort. So if you're wondering what Thunderhorse looked like, the answer is a bit of a prat. Though the cliff has a powdery surface, it is fairly firm and He-Man climbs down easily to reach a wide ledge. From here, a narrow pathway leads down towards the land far below. Do you want to follow the path? Climb down or use the creepers? I think we'll follow the path. No sense asking for trouble. The pathway is very narrow and dangerous. Several times, parts of it collapse, sending rocks spinning down into the grey land below. We now get an option. Do we want to continue down this route or take the vines or the rocks? We'll go for the rocks again, I think. 
The crumbly rock becomes firmer, less eaten away by weather and the effects of plant roots. He-Man soon touches the bottom, relieved to have his feet firmly on the ground again. A thick layer of ash-grey soil covers the scorched land. Many volcanoes erupt, boiling lava, and pits of oily, evil-smelling liquid cover the landscape. He-Man walks towards the spiral of dark smoke that marks the position of Snake Mountain. Roll a dice, or roll a die, and it's a straight 50-50. I got a six. Waste of a perfectly good six, but uh, that sends us in a particular direction. At every step, He-Man's feet cause a small cloud of ash to billow into the air, as if the land were burning once more. Suddenly the ground gives way. He-Man plummets into darkness, landing on a pile of damp grey mud in a narrow tunnel. Above him, the blue sky shines through a gaping hole. You want to follow the tunnel or try and climb out? I don't think we're going to be able to climb out, so I think we'll follow the tunnel. The tunnel is low and dark, lit only by the occasional glowing rock. Sometimes the roof forces He-Man to crouch low. At other times it soars upwards to a great height. It was through one of these thin areas that He-Man fell into the tunnel. In the distance he thinks he can hear the faint sound of hammering, but it may be his imagination. Suddenly the faint hammering is replaced by a much louder noise. It is the sound of grinding or burrowing. Another 50-50. One. Get it out of the way, I guess. The sound becomes much louder as the tunnel wall begins to crumble away. Out comes a vast, worm-like creature, covered with heavy, faintly glowing armour plating and horns. And there's uh, an image of the metallic snake thing on this double page. Looks pretty big. Looks very metallic. Nice work. We can attack it or remain still and let it pass. Uh, hopefully, it's just doing metal snake stuff, you know? It's got some metal worm errands it needs to run. Let's just let it pass and see what happens. He-Man freezes, not with fear, but through caution. A creature has done him no harm yet. The giant armoured worm eventually grinds its way through to the other side of the tunnel and disappears back into its own dark world. Carefully, He-Man digs his way through the tunnel and continues on his journey. Good call from me. He-Man hurries through the dark tunnel towards Snake Mountain. He knows that every second counts. After what seems like an age, he begins to hear the sound of mining more clearly. Soon he is rushing deeper and deeper into the mines. We've got an image of the mines. Dark purple with some red accents, I guess, of lava in the background. And we've got some Skelcons. Uh, taking to their heels, which is relevant because the Skelcons drop their mining tools and flee in terror at the sight of He-Man. Without Skeletor to drive them on, they are lazy and cowardly. Much like myself. At last, He-Man reaches the deepest part of the mine and enters the small chamber. We have a nice double image of the Chamber of the Memory Stone. I mean, I say nice, it's mostly just a brownie russet backdrop, but the colour gradients are pleasant. The memory-draining stone lies in the centre of the chamber. He-Man approaches it carefully. Suddenly there is a flash, and out of a cloud of dark green, foul-smelling smoke steps Skeletor, Lord of Destruction. So, He-Man, you have come this far, but you will go no further. <laughs> Prepare to die, he laughs. Skeletor raises his havoc staff. 
He-Man stands ready with the power blade drawn and shining with energy. So this is going to be a tough old battle. We can lose two life points if we roll a one, but the six get, gets us home. So let's see what we get. We get a four. He-Man punches Skeletor and wounds him. Add one to your next roll. Six. Excellent. Genuinely punch the air there. <laughs> I may be a little bit too invested in this adventure game book aimed at the under tens. He-Man knocks Skeletor unconscious with a blow from the mighty power blade. With Skeletor lying unconscious on the floor of the chamber, He-Man rushes across to the small grey stone that has caused all this trouble. Raising the power blade high above his head, he then brings its magic edge slicing down into it. The pebble bursts into hundreds of pieces, and Man-at-Arms' memory goes back to him over the many miles. Back at Castle Greyskull, Man-at-Arms suddenly looks up. My memory, he shouts, it has returned. He-Man must have conquered Skeletor at last. Quickly, Man-at-Arms sets about repairing and recharging the machines that have remained idle for so long. Armed with newly working energy weapons, they make Skeletor's band of evil followers turn tail and flee. Foul creatures scatter into the countryside as bright blue laser beams flash towards them from the castle. When all is quiet once more, Man-at-Arms and Teela ride out in battle ram to rescue He-Man from Snake Mountain. They pick him up from the very top of the mountain where he stands in triumph. The dark and deadly side of Eternia is, for the moment, defeated. The masters of the universe are one step closer to the total destruction of all that is evil. And the double page spread here is mostly the power sword swinging and you can see the pebble, the memory pebble, memory stone shattering into many, many pieces. So a successful adventure. I'll be back in a few seconds with some closing thoughts. So that was He-Man and the Memory Stone. And do you know what? I had a nice time with this one. A better time than I was expecting to, in fact. It's not going to win any awards, but the things it does, it does pretty well. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, it does feel like a He-Man story. You get to meet a selection of heroes and villains from the Masters of the Universe, and they all act more or less as you would expect. We actually got a little unlucky on that playthrough because we didn't get to tangle with Evelyn or Trapdoor, who are included, but we got to beat up Beastman and Skeletor, and that's the most important thing. I'm also supremely grateful that Orko, the annoying sidekick so beloved of 80s cartoons, didn't get to come with us on our journey. The depiction of He-Man is arguably less powerful, considerably less powerful than his cartoon incarnation, but that's absolutely a necessary feature if you want to have your story retain even a semblance of tension. If you had him powered up to cartoon levels, it would have been a very, very short adventure. I felt the locations were all memorable and suitably over the top. We got to go through forests, desert, mines and more on the journey, and the locations all have a distinctive feel, and that's enormously helped by the art which bathes every double-page spread in a single dominant colour appropriate to the environment for at least some of the paragraphs featured on the pages. Sometimes you're in a tunnel and there's a picture of a horse in a silly necklace, but you know, that's fine. Having full-colour illustrations throughout is a definite bonus, 
even if the number of paragraphs per page makes the actual space for the art quite small, it just feels like a high quality product. It feels like something where care and attention has been lavished on it, which is unusual for this kind of spin-off material. It manages to squeeze 150 paragraphs into its very short page count, which is no mean feat in and of itself. Opening and closing paragraphs aside, there's a tremendous economy of words being used to describe the adventure. But it all does what it needs to do. I think writing for very young children is a tremendous challenge. And this is a book that rises to that challenge remarkably well. It's simple, but it isn't stupid. Everything makes sense, and at no point did I feel like I was being patronised. That was a big contrast to the Dungeons & Dragons Endless Quest book we covered a while back, which, despite a longer page count, frequently felt both patronising and stupid. I'm also very impressed by the system being used by the book as well. It shows what you can do with absolute economy. Crucially, there's only one thing the reader needs to track. He-Man's life total as it dwindles down from 12. Everything else is handled with spot rules which are written on the page as and when they occur. This dramatically reduces the amount of information a young child needs to hold in their head at the same time as reading the words on the page. Making sure that everything is resolved using a single six-sided die is also a smart move for me because apart from anything else, it's the sort of thing any household should be able to rustle up from their games box if they play any kind of family games at all. I thought the combat was pretty clever. I loved how everything ran off a unique D6 table and how those tables were adjusted to reflect the threat level. There's a consistency there, which is so important for making a game feel fair, but at the same time there's scope to differentiate encounters, both in terms of how easy they are to get past and also the flavour they impart through the different die roll results. That's something I'm almost certainly going to nick for a future gaming project. It feels like there's a lot more you could do with this core system, and that's an amazing surprise, and also something that's not always true of some of the bigger gamebook series. You've also got luck playing a part in the decision-making, with some branches in the narrative being determined by a random die roll. I think it probably does this a little too much. It's fine occasionally, but I'd have preferred a bit more of a sense of agency at certain points. Having it usually be a 50-50, but occasionally adjusting the odds is also a very nice touch because it means you can adjust the difficulty of the role. And that's something that fighting fantasy struggles with to an extent. Luck rolls are dependent on how many times you've already made a luck roll. So if you want to make a situation more dangerous using luck rolls, you have to contrive ways to reduce the player's luck before they get to it which essentially means creating other situations where players test their luck. This gets around that at a cost of feeling more arbitrary. If you want to have it be you've only got a one in six chance of the good outcome, you can do that at any encounter. Of course, the cost of that is it does feel more arbitrary. I think there's probably a happy medium somewhere that's quick and easy and brings the best of both worlds. Now, many of the decisions you do get to make in the narrative are quite straightforward. I think even a young child could land on the sensible option most of the time, given the abundance of contextual clues. This highlights a tension I've observed before. If you always play fair, there's no sense of jeopardy. But if you don't provide any clues, then everything feels random. Sometimes what looks like the right answer needs to trip you up to maintain a sense of threat, but getting the balance right is really really hard. 
And I think given the age group this book targets, I no great problem with how it implements decision making. It's quite clever that a small child should be able to complete the adventure on a first playthrough, but then have different adventures subsequently thanks to the random die rolls. I think that's a very neat piece of synchronicity that they've included. Lastly, there's something very subtle that this book does well. There's quite a lot of places where you get bounced straight from one paragraph to the next, which regular listeners will know is one of my pet hates. It's something that is very hard to avoid entirely in gamebook design, especially if you want a nice round number of paragraphs, but it's all too often a lazy way of bulking out the paragraph count in general. Here though, there's a few occasions where one paragraph sets up a tension or asks a question, which is then resolved when you flick to the next one. And just the simple act of having to find another page creates a sense of temporal separation between the two sections, and that can be used to heighten the passage of time, or set up incredibly mild cliffhangers. And that's something I'd not considered before, but something that, again, I think I might be stealing for my own projects. I'm going to stop overthinking a book aimed at primary school children now. If I get any deeper down this rabbit hole, I'll end up just going through it line by line and word by word. I'll just sum up by saying that this was better than it had any right to be, and leave it at that. Thanks for listening, and don't forget that if you want to ensure a steady stream of additional content for this podcast, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Any and all support is very gratefully appreciated, but if you can't, that's fine. This podcast will remain free to everyone. If you've got strong opinions about He-Man, and who doesn't, you can tell me all about them at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to delve into the soul-shuddering horrors contained within the fighting fantasy book House of Hell, but until then, stay safe, be kind, and take care. (laughs) 